Hello, this is Mark Little. You join us here for a recorded version of a show at the Project Art Centre in Dublin, a presentation of a new television project tomorrow tonight, supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Thank you all so much for turning out in such numbers. You're very welcome. Uh, my name is Mark Little. I will be your host uh, for this evening to talk in a little bit about one of the most remarkable projects I've ever been involved in, and I've been a few years in television. But also tonight, I want to set the scene for a conversation we're going to have about what I think we can all agree is this disconnect between the awareness we have about the climate crisis and the kind of action that we feel we take. So, so tonight, we want to talk about the role of the creative arts, of fiction, of people who are deep in their communities, making that connect between the awareness and the action, and that's our theme for tonight. But first, in my biggest Orson Well voice, I can say, roll it there, Kira. It's November 2050, and at a make-or-break United Nations summit, the leaders of the world try to halt the runaway impacts of climate change. Today, that has to end. Join me, Mark Little, and Carla O'Brien as we guide you through this seismic night. And yet here we are in crisis. With expert analysts in studio. Really, the stakes couldn't be higher tonight. There has been an entire industry of climate disinformation. Nobody wants to believe that they chose this future. And reporters all over the world. Will we soon see green helmets being sent in to enforce climate action? This could be planet Earth's last chance to save itself, and the outcome is still too close to call. So that's us. In 27 years, um, there's a concept that came from the mind of um, some of the people who join me here today, of Cormac and Colin and Cara, and I'll introduce you all properly in a moment. And some of the people, I know Carl O'Brien is with us there. Uh, Cormac Hargett, you, you are the founder, co-founder of Loose Horse. Um, you're one of the most experienced TV producers in this country. Does this idea come to you fully formed? Talk me through where Tomorrow Tonight just aided. It, it goes back about 18 months, um, Mark, when Commissioner Naman invited ideas about uh, the climate crisis. And I run Loose Horse with Tricia Canning, and we had just completed a series of programmes that we call Twisty History. So when Commissioner Naman invited ideas about the climate crisis, we wondered, could we apply the same formula to science as we had been doing with our Twisty History ideas? And effectively, that's what we've done. We've, we've set the time machine to the future, and we're looking at a moment in time in our climate crisis in the future, where the net zero in 2050 that we've been talking about for so long hasn't been achieved, and there's a particular moment of jeopardy, and we, we unfold a current affairs programme with a sense of breaking news set in 2050, and I suppose the idea really is, is just to try and make that more relatable to Mrs Kelly and Kinnegad, who might switch off if she's watching the nine o'clock news and all the doom and gloom. So once we got the funding, it was just a question of building the team. And the first person that we, we needed to approach was a writer. And Colin Murphy had worked with us. So with his background, I think he was a natural choice for it. You're dropping a big job of work in him, right? There's no historical record. That's the big difference, by the way, with the twisty histories. There's no historical record. And you are the world builder. And I want to talk to you about that in a moment. But let's just look at a clip which shows a bit of the world that uh, you invented. Swedish Prime Minister Greta Thunberg has set a deadline of 5 p.m. Eastern Time for the United Nations Security Council to commit to her radical new climate resolution. For 50 years we have compromised on climate action. Today that has to end. Greenland's glaciers would keep melting, slowly and irreversibly. If the models were wrong, it's far worse than that. 
We need to take governments, companies and individuals who are violating their net zero commitments and hold them accountable now. More rules, more regulations, more restrictions. The richest of us are building new colonies in space. Tranquility-wise will be an idyllic place to raise a family. Drones to defend the forest, AI to help regrow it. You know, once we got the school lunches contract, like, should that just change everything? Spike Island off the coast of Cork is home to Ireland's first migrant protection zone. Legally, we are now an EU territory. That's what's at stake in the Security Council today. Colin Murphy, you are a playwright, you're a journalist, you're a writer, and you've had to combine all those different dimensions in creating this, this future world. A lot of constraints to begin with. Yes. Um, I, I mean, when people think about science fiction or, or climate fiction, they kind of think of unbridled imagination, whereas this was, this was incredibly constrained. And, and that's because, you know, we're, we're, we're writing for, making it for the, 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 the national broadcaster. This is a politically contested space. It is rooted in journalism, it's using journalists and commentators uh, as part of it. Um, so it is going to be held to journalistic standards. So I was writing it thinking, this has to be defensible on Liveline the following day. Um, <laughs> and, and yet, it can't be boring. You know, so 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 um, you know, one of the first things we had to do was 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 you know say, well, look, what's what's our you know what's what's our broad frame? What's our where are we in 2050? And and so we looked at the pathways. You know, and Cara guided me through this, and the RCPs and that. But we said, okay, let let we'll choose that middle of the road. So it could be worse. It could be a lot better. But then within that, we thought, well, okay, well, let, let's explore pessimism and optimism, um, so that we can push it to extremes um, and be, you know exploit the drama and also as much as possible comedy in it because this is both going out in the guise of a current affairs program, but it also has to work as entertainment, uh, like like all of the, the, the dramas I've done. So hence uh, the school lunches contract and little. Ooh, little a couple like more that. that came spontaneously on the days themselves. We were recording the program, uh, Dr. Cara. Augustin Bergiro, one of Ireland's leading environmental scientists, um, also someone who's been very, very clear in the kind of robust communication we have to have. You were kind of the science police, right, <laughs> uh, in this production. Tell us a little bit the relationship that you developed with Colin. I like that title, Science Police, I'm going to use that one. Actually, Colin made it really easy because when he called me, he'd already read all the IPCC reports on the projections and he was quoting models. Yeah, yeah. I was a little intimidated. He was like, which model should we use? You know, um, so, so that helped. But I think, uh, I think as someone who talks about the climate crisis all the time and, and wants to be seen as credible, it's always a little kind of nerve-wracking when someone approaches you and wants to do something entertaining, right? I mean, we know we have to make this entertaining to get people to watch, but um, we don't really think of the climate crisis as being something that's funny or entertaining and things, so it's really hard to get that balance. So luckily, Colin has like a really good record behind him, so he was able to do that really nice mix of serious evidence-based and science, but also something that will capture people's imagination and will make people laugh and will make people cry and, and, and hits all those emotional points, which we so need when it comes to climate communication. Like we're just, as scientists, we're just not really trained to be able to do that. So we need creative people to come in and, and help us with those kind of things. But just to say that, I remember the early stages, this was back in January, I think, and we were talking. And at the early days, there was a kind of a risk to this. It was a bit of a, a frisson, right? Um, I mean, if you, Cara, if, if this had pulled at punches, if this had compromised, yeah. you would have been very exposed, I would assume, in, in terms of the reputation you built up as someone who was a robust 
proponent yeah. of this view. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, trying to figure out uh, or make a make a scenario on how well have we reduced emissions in 2050 is, is really tricky because I mean we are there are there are signs of change even right now here in Ireland where we can see policies being put into place where uh, you know emissions will start to go down in the next few years because we have more cycle lanes or, or, or you know more wind energy or whatever. So we can't say well emissions are going to continue to rise, but yet we also know we're not doing enough. So getting that balance right of saying well in 2050 we did some stuff but we didn't do enough and what's the implication of that is um, is tricky and I think I think we've done it but you know it could have gone either way yeah, I think there's a moment and, and Katrina Devereaux is here as well uh, did as you know as a presenter herself but also did the research here guided us to a kind of a very optimistic scenario that comes almost unfolded at a table around farming, which Cormac, I think, was one of the feeling, things I felt beforehand. I, I couldn't see a scenario in which agriculture was part of society, not just part of the economy. Yeah, and I suppose we, just as program makers, we're conscious that we inherit tomorrow night an audience from the 9 o'clock news, a very big audience. The audience is very sceptical, and part of that audience feels besieged. And particularly, you know, the farming community feels particularly besieged. So we were very keen that we would paint a possible future for the rural economy in Ireland that's, that's positive and that's affirmative without um, compromising on some truths around their role within, within climate change in 2023. So Colin has sort of uh, painted a picture where agriculture is really disrupted, but in 2050 it's much more part of the solution than the problem. You know, and we see it much more as you know, central to society rather than central to the economy. Well, as I was looking back at precedents for climate fiction, um, I kept seeing you know, movies where you see at the last moment the earth is saved by the superhuman hero, uh, which leads to complacency, or dystopian treatments of fiction which leave you just demoralized and, and almost sapped in energy. Where were you looking for inspiration from previous climate fiction? Um, I, I looked at Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson in, 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 in particular. I, I'd been introduced to him by, by a pal just kind of shortly before this, so, so I, was kind of, I was struggling my way through that epic New York 2140. Um, and, but like the Ministry of, future, of, of, of the Future is, is, is in a similar timescale to this. And so that was, was really interesting and, and, and very useful. Um, but... And around the time we were making it, um, Extrapolations was on, the big budget Apple one that got a lot of attention. And, um, but you know, they, they, they had a freedom um, and a, a, a danger in that freedom uh, as well, which is that I think, I think both Robinson's work and, and, for example, Extrapolations can get a little taken over by the conceptual, which is kind of typically, or the, which is a bit of a stereotype about science fiction. Um, and we had to keep it very grounded in, um, in, in, in the lived experience of, of Irish people. And 27 years is not that far into the future. Cara, those of us who know the media know its short-term focus makes it a very difficult vehicle for mm -hmm. the truth. Yeah. But surely fiction should be better. And, and yet I don't see a lot of fiction that I've seen that, it, that has that combination, that balance between the right kind of anxiety yeah. and a sense of agency. Yeah. I mean, have there been exceptions or examples you can think of? Yeah, I mean, I've always felt that what's missing when I'm trying to communicate why we should act or, or uh, what the future holds if we don't act is the visuals have been missing entirely. So we, we really, we've only recently started to see investment by, by the government right now in, in kind of creative programming around climate. Um, but I think what we really, really need is to show people that in 2050, you know, in our generation, uh, this is what the world will look 
like if we don't address climate change and this is what the world will look like if we do. And actually, we, we need less of the what will happen if we don't address climate change because we're actually seeing that. We just need to turn on the news now and we see Middleton and all these places are, are reflective of what the world will look like. But we really have nothing out there on what the world would look like if we did fully address climate change in the way that we need to. And when I imagine that in my head, it's actually a much better world. It's a world where our, our children and, and we can go cycling to our high street very safely and we can do uh, more of our shopping on our local high street because it's easier to get there and we're not looking for parking and our local economy does better and we're more active. And so there's all these other co-benefits that, that we don't have any way of really um, conveying to the public except through visual media and we, we really need more of that. So the, my dramatist version of you, you saying that the visuals are missing is, is the thing that's missing is character. Um, so yeah, we have all the information, news gives us information and this is a, a, it's, it's a news style programme. Uh, um, but drama gives you imagination and drama gives you empathy. Uh, and and what, you, what you need, I think, where the, the information remains abstract, you need, drama allows you to see the world through somebody else's eyes, to, 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 to walk in their shoes. Um, and, and so that's, that's, that, that's what you can't get in, in journalism. Um, and that's what you can't get in science or conventional science communication. Yeah, yeah I think it was Dr. Paul Dean, one of our contributors on the, on the studio discussion, he had, a, he had a phrase about you can't see greenhouse gases, you can't touch it, you can't feel it, but you can see people. So when Colin was able to personify a lot of the issues and it became much more of an experiential thing for the viewer rather than an abstraction. And I think that's kind of... That, that's a powerful strategy, I think. I've just read Paul Lynch's Prophet Song, yes. which I think may come to be seen in the context of climate fiction. Right? Um, and, and he says in, in, in the book, and talking about it, that, that the, the point of the book really is that the end of the world doesn't come, that's the end of the world. The end, end of the world comes to different places at, at different times, and the rest of the world is watching on the telly screen or not paying attention whatsoever. And we know all about that at the moment. Um, so the, the dystopian future it doesn't necessarily just come in the future, it's actually already come to some places. Mm -hmm. So, so the, the, um, the, the, the scene we have in, on Spike Island um, is based on um, a, a visit I made to northern Morocco and to the Spanish enclaves there, 10 years ago now, um, when I talked to people from like, Bangladesh uh, who had come in container ships around to West Africa and then, you know, being, being transported across Africa, and then we're now stuck in Spain, but not in Spain, and trying to get to the mainland, trying to get to Europe. Um, and uh, so, yes, what, what seems like a very dystopian future for Ireland, that this could be, there could be somebody on Spike Island dreaming of getting across uh, this small bit of sea to Cork is... is that is, is a, a shadow, actually, and we, we kind of make a reference to what happens in Britain in 2050, where we suggest a much more, like, draconian result, which is actually the plot of John Lancaster's novel, The yes. Wall, which I only reviewed afterwards. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of a shadow sitting in the background that we don't explore of what other nations may have done to just wall themselves off from a reality a bit don't look up in, in some manners mm -hmm. of yeah. speaking. And when we spoke to, when you spoke, Mark, to Dr. Sharon Lambert, yes. who's, a, who's a real world uh, psychologist here, and we located her to the Pacific Islands where people had been relocated from their homelands because it had been effectively swallowed by the sea level rise. And she spoke about anxiety, climate anxiety, she spoke about grief, she spoke about all the psychological processes that we're all going through. And I guess that was the balancing act really for us that we, we needed to, to counterbalance those 
kind of very heavyweight themes. You know, you're actually talking about people grieving for a nature that is no longer there in 2050. So it was all the more important that we had that sense of humour and we had that sense of the absurd, you know, just to try and keep Mrs Kelly and Kinnegad watching all the way. But, but also, in doing the humour bit as well, and I want you just to introduce a, a bit of a clip here, we did make some serious points that there's the kind of the right side of innovation, which is the kind of things we see in the farms, and then the people want to send us to Mars to escape. And, and I thought, as a person who's involved in innovation, that was really striking, but done with a great big tongue in the cheek. <laughs> so we'll see now if I could ask you maybe to set the scene for Mr. Marcus Grift. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I think Marcus Grift is launching his... Um, it's the first phase of his, his housing development on the moon called Tranquility Rise, and he's chosen this particular day at the UN summit to try and gazump the news agenda with his launch and our reporters there to talk to him. We'll have you later for Q&A, but let's just roll that particular clip. Thank you. Let's go live now to Ava Ryan, who I believe is with the colony's founder, Marcus Grift. Thanks, Mark. I must begin by congratulating you on the recent birth of your child. You must be over the moon. Well, I won't pretend that we haven't heard that before, but thank you. And do you know, she's the first human in history who's never been on Earth. It's quite a milestone for our species, which is why I'm so excited to be opening our new housing complex here on the colony. Tranquility Rise will be an idyllic place to raise a family, and I'm certain that our development represents the future of human living. If you can afford it. Back on the earth that your daughter has never been to, most people face rising seas, harsher storms, more frequent droughts. Now, with your resources, you could have been working on that challenge, but instead you've spent decades working on what I have to say looks very much like an escape plan for the 1%. This is what's going to save earth. We are outgrowing the earth. There are too many of us. We need too much energy. We have to find a way of allowing our civilization to continue to grow without causing more damage to the Earth. And to do that, we can move our industry into space where there is unlimited energy, and then there'll be no obstacle to population growth. Someday, we could have a trillion humans in the solar system. When you talk of a trillion humans in space, what kind of time scale are you looking at? Oh, hundreds of years at least. But to get there, we have to start now. It's like opening the Wild West. We've got to build the roads, sink the wells, so that the development and entrepreneurialism can follow. But don't you think it's interesting that it's not a government that's up here building a colony on the moon. It's a private company. That may prove to be the Earth's greatest export, capitalism. Mr. Marcus Grift and any resemblance to any real tech billionaire is completely <laughs> Incidental, and that was all the tomorrow, tonight detail. And now I think I have a group of people who I think will take us into a, another area, as I talked about earlier on, this disconnect between the awareness and the action, and Ruth and Owen and Maeve and Diane. Thank you so much for joining us. I might start with you, Dr. Ruth Freeman. You are the Director of Science in Society for Science Foundation Ireland. I, I just love that title. I also love the fact that you're supporting this live event here tonight, which I think speaks to the overall approach that Oh, for more than a decade, that science in society has been something that you've championed. Tell us about how you've tried to 
get over this disconnect between the awareness and the action? Yeah, well, of course, it is Science Week, as we saw there on the screen just beforehand. And, and that is, I suppose, a moment in the year that we support to have a collective conversation. And I guess that's been going on for more than 20 years. And it started, you know, very much as a small activity that mostly happened with researchers in academia and in schools. And it was very much a kind of show and tell exercise where we would try and do some fun experiments and, and get people interested in science. But I think, as you say, Mark, over the kind of past decade, we've really reflected on what an opportunity it presents to do something much more radical, much broader, and invite everybody into a conversation about the role of technology in our lives, and of course, and, and science. and and and. You know, it's very hard to disentangle those conversations from climate over the past number of years. They're, they're inherently linked. And I think if you look at lots of other things that have happened in science and research, there are niche conversations that happen with researchers and, and sometimes the creative community come in as well. But they don't go very broad, those conversations. Because it can often feel like the elites talking down to us in terms of scientists or journalists or especially politicians. Is that, do you think, the root cause of where that disconnect had been? Uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's that people are intentionally uh, trying to be elite about these conversations. I just think they happen frequently in places where people don't have access. And that's really at the heart of, I suppose, the modern science week. So now, you know, we're delighted to partner with RTE to have sort of very accessible, again, we talked mm. about the fact that these things, they can't just be, here's the science bit, because a lot of people will not feel invited into that conversation. There's all sorts of different roots in for different people. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to find the hook and the connection, and it's going to be different for different people. And of course, the issues are interlinked. I mean, work that you've done previously, I mean, if you think about AI, which is another big topic for Science Week, and how we interact on social media and on the web, that underpins action and how we might react to the climate crisis. You can't separate those two when you come to things like disinformation and truth. So, mm. you know, there's an awful lot to discuss and we have to involve as many people as we can. So, so that's part of what we've been trying and, to and do. And the three people you're sharing a panel here with today do this in the most remarkable way. And Owen Warner, I'm tempted to give you a big introduction, but I won't. I will <laughs> let your work speak for itself. For most of European history, Ireland was the very edge of the world. A remote green land looking out into the abyss. The great ocean that stretched into eternity. And off Ireland's north and west coasts were the most extreme places of all. Rocky citadels that were the very first to face the Atlantic storms. These savage islands were sought out by a handful of humans looking for God and by wild creatures in search of shelter and food. My name is Owen Warner and I've spent my life traveling the length of Ireland in search of its precious wild places and the elusive animals that make them their home. And on this journey, I'll be sailing out into the Atlantic to the hidden worlds that are Ireland's wild islands. Oh, and I heard Colin Murphy talked about communicating with empathy. I mean, you can communicate with awe. <laughs> it is the only word I can think of. It's a of. very tough job. It doesn't look it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the smallest violin. Right? <laughs> um, but no, I would, you, you talked about your whole life 
uh, involved in, in presenting Irish nature, Irish wildlife the way you do. What has changed in the way you relate to nature and climate over the, the careers you've had? I, I came to this quite late. I didn't find it on the CAO form when I was looking out. My, <laughs> but um, I, I'm not an expert. I'm not a scientist. I, I'm, I suppose I'm someone who is just com has always been completely besotted and in awe of the natural world. Um, and I, I, my role in, in these documentaries is to try and inspire others to, to see that connection and, and to see the value in, in, our, in our, our wildlife. My work in this is very much trying to um, inspire people to get out into the outdoors, but also in an Irish perspective, to see um, what amazing wildlife we have on our, on our doorsteps. Because for most of us, over the last few decades, we see wildlife documentaries, blue chip, beautiful BBC documentaries from far off exotic places. And we see wildlife as being an exotic thing rather than, than as we see here. And that gives me great pleasure that there is companies like Crossing the Line who are investing the time into making these amazing documentaries so that they stand shoulder to shoulder with anything that's made across the world and it brings a new value to, it, to our wildlife. In the past it was very much about um, you know, escapism, uh, portraying this really beautiful, pristine world out there. And in lately, particularly in, in these blue chip documentaries, it's about bringing an awareness um, about the impacts that we are having on, on, on the natural world. I noticed something happening with David Admir where, you know, like journalists who want to be not off the story, they want to stay a little bit away. We're just spectators. And David Admir obviously had that kind of transition himself. Did, did, was that a major impact for, for filmmakers like you? That yeah, massively. And you can almost see that change in narrative happening in 2017 in the making of Blue Planet 2 mm. when David Attenborough um, introduces the scene of uh, a wandering albatross um, inadvertently feeding plastic to its chick. And, you know, for any of us, when you hear the statistics that, you know, hundreds of thousands of seabirds and albatross are killed every year from uh, long-line fishing, or that thousands of seabirds die every year when they ingest uh, plastic, it's a statistic and it's a sad statistic. But when you invest, when that story is being told and you invest the time in, in, in seeing this wandering albatross's parent putting so much time into this single egg and, and, and this single chick over almost a year, and then to inadvertently feed it plastic, it creates a huge impact in the viewer. And it was recorded afterwards in the 12 months following um, Blue Planet 2 um, viewership it was interviewed and it was found that over half of them had changed their use of single-use plastics. So there, there is huge impact in this sort of soft power. A lot of um, the, 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 the top-down approach is about communicating to people um, on an intellectual level only that they will understand that they need to change. But I think there's great um, for real behavioural change to happen, and that's the most. It's probably the hardest change to happen in, in the way we live and work and, and, and play. You need to connect on an emotional and on a cultural level. Yeah, and if someone's inverted that top-down approach. It's you, Maeve Stone. You are a writer and a director in film and theatre. You're also the artivist attached to the project Art Centre, which I love that title. How do you sum up your work to people who've never heard of the work you do? Um, I, I think I'm in a really privileged position that the work that I make with my partner Alex Gill through Cracking Light or the work that I get to do with Axis and Ballymun's Green Arts Department is usually beginning in a place uh, that inverts the hierarchy and it puts everybody in a room together on the same level. So if you were to ask me to, to sum up the kinds of work that comes out of that, it, there's never two projects that look the same. Um, and a lot of the time, I think the work in its best form is offering people a new way of paying attention. Um, and I think we as storytellers, as filmmakers and artists, we're met in society by a whole secret 
uh, cohort of storytellers who are working constantly and are funded far beyond anything that we will ever. And they're every advertising and marketing department in any company or organization across the world. They are storytellers who are employed to, to sell us an idea or, or a story of something that will change our behavior, which is the challenge that we kind of meet on on the stage, you know, is like, how do we how do we come in with an alternative to that? The thought that came to mind uh, in thinking about this as uh, an idea um, and what Colin was saying about how difficult it can be, maybe, to start to try and build a future, it brought to mind a project that I worked in, Ballymun on, where we started to look back as far as we were looking forward and started to ask the question of, you know, what was happening in 1950? And, you know, what, what did back gardens look like? You know, every house in, in Clontarf had something growing in it or chickens or, you know, there was a relationship to agriculture and food production that has been lost in a very short amount of time. And I think by offering that sort of glimpse of, oh, actually, it's only three generations back mm. that we had these skills, you start to see how the offer on the table to build these new systems that are more equitable and just three generations ahead in 2050, we can kind of close the gap of imagination a little bit easier when we start to, to sort of look at those parallels. And something I noticed in the, in the images there was kids engaging with nature as an object to be engaged with, not to be admired. 100%. Like, I mean, anybody who's been a child, I assume we all have. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we have an innate understanding that there is no divide between the human species and all other species and how interdependent. And there's a beautiful thing that happens when you press the curiosity button in a child. It happens automatically curiosity is a route towards love because you're paying attention the things we pay attention to we fall in love with and I think that children do it innately we all did it innately and the distraction that enters our lives in a really profound way from sort of our teen years into our adulthood when we start being redesigned for the human world but for children there is an innate uh, understanding, love and curiosity around nature that actually when you build these projects, the lovely thing that happens is the kids jump straight in, no pause, absolutely, you know, right into the middle of it. And their parents are standing in the background kind of going, <laughs> I wouldn't mind doing that. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that can be one of the biggest levers for reconnecting people to A, their own love of nature and B, the urgency with which we need to protect it because... Like, as you were saying, like, we have this incredible abundance in our, in our natural landscape and in our environmental in species that we have the privilege of holding in our landscape. But we also have the 13th worst biodiversity in the world. So we have, on one side, the offer of abundance and the memory of abundance. And we have, on the other hand, the urgency to protect it. So I think the two things have to happen simultaneously. We can't build a fantasy of abundance without recognising the urgency of the, the challenge. Now, we talked earlier on about putting our tongue in our, you know, to, we're just making fun of something to actually become aware of it and okay with it. And Diana Connor, I, I kind of struggle to introduce you in some ways, except to say that you have firmly done a very Irish thing. So right. when we sit together, <laughs> we will take a thing that we are feared of or we possibly want to be aloof from and we'll make it okay through comedy. And I'm going to introduce it by saying, look at this clip, including yourself. And if we could just take a look at this. So I've been writing the show for two years, so it's a bit of a slow burner. Do you know what I mean? Like the opposite of the planet. 
it's okay that we've got another cop this year. We've got another cop, so it's fine. So last year we cop 27, the conference of parties. We all know the cop, yeah? Um, this year we've cop 28, and then next year we've cop 29. So at this point, it's starting to feel a bit like the Fast and Furious films, isn't it? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? The only clear winner is Diesel. <laughs> you know? It's hard to believe that, that that started from, in your case, a position of anxiety, wanting to do something to just fight back. Yeah, like, and it is, like, total anxiety. I was, I was just one of those naturally anxious children growing up. I was always just kind of waiting for a catastrophe. So, you know, I've got it now. Delighted. Um, but... So I, I was always desperate. I'm kind of thinking about this, like, what is it? I was always desperate to have conversations with people about the climate, like so many of us here. And it felt like, why, why aren't we talking about it? Like, there's this really obvious thing happening and we're not talking about it. And I would be sharing, like, these dramatic posts on Facebook and everybody would ignore them. And I just really wanted to have conversations. And I feel like maybe that's what happened. I just was like, right, well, I'll just trick them into the conversations with a bit of comedy. And when I started to kind of, I, I joined the Climate Ambassador Programme and I started to like meet other like-minded people and I started to kind of, you know, get engaged in climate actions. And that kind of made me realise, well, okay, if we can help people relieve some of that tension, that then maybe then we can have these conversations. And I feel like we can't, we're not going to have the action before we have the conversations. The conversations have to come first, like. But take me back to the first time you did this. You're curing your anxiety by doing what I would see is the most fearful thing in the world, <laughs> is almost putting yourself in a trust fall with an audience to engage with you. What did that feel like? What was that conversation like, the first scaredy night that you did it? The first, like, the first time I did the climate comedy? The climate comedy. The climate comedy. That was really scary because um, it, like, like, it's not naturally funny, you know? Um, <laughs> But like that's what I'm like the climate crisis, you know, it's serious. But have you tried laughing at it? Do you know what I mean? And I, it was very scary, and for all those reasons, because you're coming from from a perspective of somebody that's really worried, and also the perspective of trying to find that obscurity in how, as a society, we're actually reacting to it. And there's a lot of comedy in that. Like there's a lot of comedy in how we're responding to it. We were just hearing about the power of an individual being given something in nature and, and just having a kinship with it. Tell me about those conversations you're having with people after the show or maybe other international comedians as well. What kind of conversations typically happen when you're laughing at climate? I guess it's kind of really taking, taking the kind of bleakness of it, like, so taking the bleakness of it and then kind of trying to look at that against what we're like what society is doing like so one of the examples is like you know last year during the, the remember there was massive floods in Nigeria and mm. Pakistan and this is a true story and I went home and I was listening to the morning news on the radio and they were talking about what crisp makes the best crisp sandwich and I was just kind of like what's going on and they were going on about it I was like it's potato cheese and onion <laughs> it doesn't need to be discussed on the news and for me, like that's that is it. It's it, and, but I think if you can get people to laugh at it, and then you're getting them to think about it as well. But on, I think some people may be despairing. I mean, I even look at the beautiful images I saw earlier there, and all I could think of is that going to be the archive that my kids look back and go, remember that? Is there sometimes you despair knowing the threat there is to this 
awe-inspiring view. That yes, but I, I think and you, you kind of touched it there, and maybe as well about why is Ireland under underperforming so much, or why is there such a great disconnect? And you, you have to start digging deep and looking at our past. And you know, we 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 came from our, our name is the Gael, which comes from you know um, the, the forest dwellers. You know, when when people were living here first, there was eighty percent tree cover. By the beginning of the founding of the Irish Free State in nineteen twenty-two, there was one percent left. And so there's there's been this ecological dispossession in Ireland, where through various reasons from urbanisation in, 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 in recent years, and also with, with um, uh, been a, a colony for so long, nature belonged to the big house. It was a, it was a, it was a big house pastime. It had the fishing rights, the hunting rights, and everything else. And so there was a reason to almost resent nature for that reason. And you know, we, we at the end of the day, we protect what we love, and that's what we have to try and do is to inspire that that uh, that um, that longing or whatever you want to call it. I think anger does have a role. And think, Diane, in your, in your case, do you, do you ever get up there and think, I want to be Lenny Bruce today and just like F and blind and tell everybody to go fuck themselves? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And then I don't. Um, <laughs> but, um, I do, but I, I feel like, and kind of going back to the despair thing, that like, you know, that, I totally get that I was there. So for me, then it was kind of realising, okay, this is a choice because when I'm despairing, I can't do anything. When I'm doing something, I feel much better. And... There's only there's always only two options to do something or do nothing, and the only people to benefit from us doing nothing is the people that are making all the bad decisions in the first place. And your man, on your clip that's going <laughs> to the moon, you know. So and I, for me, I think that was when that kind of dropped with me, and I, that kind of I was like, okay, no, this is a choice, and this is why I'm doing it, and that was really helpful for me and my anxiety because you're, it's it's not it's not again it's not put my head in the clouds, pretend everything's grand, but it's actually making that choice, well, where am I going to use my energy? Do you see a benefit from that? And, and like you're talking about being a, an ambassador for Antashka, I think it is? Yeah, 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 ambassador, yeah. So when you go out and do that work, you're out there in the community, do you see the response coming back from people who suddenly get infected by that sort of, I'm going to stay positive and focused? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And like, maybe you've like big communities of like within the climate as well. And it's such, uh, like, you're like, Okay, well, when shit goes down, these are the people I want to be with. Like, I want to be with these people because we are actually working really hard to try to turn this ship around. But we're also having fun. Like, there's so much fun to be had as well. But I'm stuck at one thing, and we'll bring back our friend Marcus Griff right now. And I believe we were talking earlier on, someone said that the dominance of a certain billionaire's trip into suborbital space uh, took up more attention that has been given to climate change in the United States at one particular time. And that goes to this heart of something I hear a lot from people who are not only deniers, but skeptics who say it will always be certain people who will pay the price. There will be no fairness in what you call climate justice. I mean, how do you respond to that, which is a deeply felt and I think legitimate feeling? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I remember seeing a lecture many years ago and it really stuck with me. And it, and it was a research using, using monkeys and it was a behavioral study which looked at how they responded to rewards. And of course, you know, these monkeys were trained to press a button and get a reward. And when they get a, a reward, it's a piece of cucumber and they are thrilled to get that piece of cucumber until they see someone else doing exactly the same thing and getting a grape because a grape is way better <laughs> than a piece of cucumber. And I think it, it just underlines how inherent that sense of fairness is to us as, as a species. Well, listen, we're going to take some questions now. Stay where you are. I want to invite back as well Cara and Colin. Cormac is there, is there as well. And we have Jess and Laura, who in the darkness <laughs> here I know are walking about with microphones. Um, and I want to just uh, bring you all back together as a collective. First of all, 
I can't thank you enough for um, bridging that disconnect we talked about earlier on, but I'd love to hear from you. Good evening. Question for the whole panel. All that you said is true, unfortunately. Do you think government is doing enough in terms of policy, in terms of leading by example, to try and generate a collective effort? I think that might be a question for... Yeah, Cara, do you want to pick that one? Yeah, I'll start because I teach environmental policy and as part of that, one of the things I do is, is chair a report card of government every year for friends commissioned by Friends of the Earth. So we're tracking the, the policies that government has committed to and, and how they're making progress in that. So I, I would say that certainly this government has done more than any previous government in terms of environmental commitments. There's about 300 environmental commitments in the program for government, uh, but it's clearly not enough in that they've created legally binding carbon budgets that we're supposed to stay within every five years, and we know from EPA projections that we're not going to achieve those, we're not staying within those carbon budgets, so, you know, the science is telling us emissions are not going down fast enough, but particularly on the engagement of society. There's been a, a lot more work on youth engagement in this government than we've seen before. So like even at the last COP, uh, there were about 15 or 20 young people from Ireland that were participating in the COP and really engaging. And there's been various initiatives. You're probably familiar with a lot of them. But at the at, in terms of getting communities involved, we have these national dialogues for climate action. And on Friday, there's one, a national dialogue on the sustainable development goals. But they're really just talking shops that haven't really resulted in any action and it's kind of the same people at them and, and we're not really getting into the communities and mobilizing change. And I think part of that is because we keep looking at the government to fix these problems and we keep saying we need system change and we're now at a stage that in addition to system change we also need a lot more local action too and all of us as individuals have to be doing a lot more. We haven't put that onto people because we, we tried the power of one campaign back in around 2008 or 2009 but that was really putting the responsibility on individuals and taking the responsibility off of government. So I think getting that balance right is, is what we're struggling with at the moment. Irish people kind of tend not to be, they're confused about which is the most impactful thing they can do. You know, the recycling plays a lot there, but actually plant diet might be more effective. I'm just wondering how we give people the right priority above something else uh, in the conversation we're having. I mean, I think one of the complexities here, and, and you, you sort of reference climate and environmental, is that we're kind of living in the epicenter of a whole series of different interlinked crises. So, you know, yes, we have a biodiversity crisis and we just had a citizens' assembly to discuss that. You know, we probably have a global pollution crisis when you kind of look at planetary boundaries and the thresholds that we're going over. And, and these are all interlinked, but, you know, the particular issue around greenhouse gases and rising temperatures, you know, I think we need to separate that out maybe from some of the is other issues sometimes, and that's around clear information. But, but I mean, clearly what we know is that plant-based diet and flying less are the two big individual actions that people can take. Um, but, you know, the, the flip side of that is maybe what we do at the ballot box is the biggest action we can take. And, you know, we saw, I think, the last election, there was a lot of people talking about being climate voters. And I think maybe that's the piece where, you know, I think some of the, the policies that have to be put in place, because it's, it's difficult to do them and make sure they're fair. I think, you know, sometimes what the political system needs to hear is that people actually want more. Because actually, when you survey the Irish population, what they're saying is, we want you to step in more and we want you to regulate. We want you to make it fair. And it's a bit like this. We're all in it together. We want there to be a level playing field where where it's not unfair and we're all playing our part. 
And the research tells us when we're exposed to a little bit of science, we get more demanding. Yeah. Um, I asked a question of Cara in the studio, I just want to relate this one, where I said to her, if you could get back in the time machine from 2050 to today and do something different, and I thought you were going to say, you know, like I'd be passing this law or doing this innovation, you said, just get more determination. I said something like that. I thought it was a really powerful um, way of summarising what you were talking about, and Ruth just said as well. I think I also said enjoying an environmental NGO, that if only we were more active as a community, you guys, have, you, I mean, you're part of Antarctica, so you can you can see um, we don't have a tradition in Ireland as much as, say, in the UK of being part of these kind of uh, NGOs or even supporting them financially, and they're doing great work. Uh, loads of them are doing great work, and you can go to the Irish Environmental Network and see a list of about 30 or 40 environmental organizations that are doing great work on an absolute shoestring and I would say if we could all just get behind them more and support them in their work. Great. We have a question here. Pete Lund from the SRI. A, hey, Pete. A, a quick point and then a question. Uh, the quick point is actually the Irish public think using a reusable shopping bag for a year has a bigger impact on climate emissions than eating a plant-based diet. <laughs> One of the things for me that hasn't come out so far in the discussion is villainy. Uh, really good narratives have baddies, they have villains. And the problem for me is that the public doesn't really understand who the villains of this piece are yet, and there are absolute villains in this piece. There are people who are continuing to make money, polluting the environment while doing it, knowing exactly what they're doing, lobbying governments like crazy. When one government stops listening to them, they go to another international government and lobby them. We've got to start, I think, anyway, and I'm just interested in what the panel thinks about this, when are we going to start telling the story about the villains and what they're actually doing? It took 30 years to work it out with tobacco. We don't have 30 years this time. Yeah. It's a good point. And when you come back to the subsidies that governments all over the world still give to fossil fuel companies versus, say, those environmental NGOs on a shoestring, it's a bit of a David and Goliath uh, situation. Yeah, the villains are also very good at, at defamation threats and lawsuits, <laughs> so it's very hard to call them out publicly. They have the biggest marketing departments, so their army of storytellers is embedded in every platform, every surface that you move through in the city. Uh, that's what we're up against. So I would encourage people who have lo lots of money to start giving it to the artists. Because <laughs> 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 yes. we, know, we know who the villains are, but they have the biggest marketing departments. And to what extent does greenwashing, is the term obviously, where we see companies that have an historically villainous record deciding they've got a new direction in life and they're going to save the planet. I mean, to what extent is that partly to do with the obscuring of, of that, uh, that villain in our society, anyone? They, they are masters of sleight of hand. They're magicians and they have the resources to make it very effective, very emotional, very affecting. And like I say, you know, how many minutes of the day are you not exposed to advertising and marketing? How many, you know, times have you moved through your own country, your own town, your own city and not been bombarded by advertising and marketing? They have the absolute chokehold on our attention. And I think that for me always comes back to is how do we wrestle back our attention and start to tell our stories properly? Because there are villains and they are invisible currently. But just thinking about how you can draw people in together, you talked about the idea that people feel sort of isolated. They're often struggling, I guess, in trying to find a place for themselves to feel they belong to something and then that they can actually influence change. And I think we need to look at those models of actually using art and many other things to get people together to see that those small steps can be taken collectively because that motivation of being part of something, seeing it in action and seeing the change you can make 
is how you get on to the bigger steps. But a lot of people just at the moment are feeling maybe slightly isolated and anxious, as you described earlier, and they can't see the path to that sort of practical involvement. Anyone else got a question we can... Thanks. Um, Maeve, you alluded to every house grew stuff in the 1950s, right? I suppose I'm involved with an initiative to regenerate the Irish-grown wool industry, and we are saying it's like back to the future. So I just wonder, in terms of what actions we need to take, do we just need to talk to the old folks about how we had a, a clean country not that long ago and and work from there? Um, Like, I certainly subscribe to that. I think that if you look back by kind of 50 to 80 years, all of our systems were not single use because that wasn't an option. We had much more circular patterns in our behaviour, in our daily use. And we also understood where things came from and their value at a different level. Um, And I think that if we really recognise the extreme value of the elders in our society, then we begin to recognise that they are custodians of understanding knowledge um, that that should have been passed down through the generations. But because of convenience and capitalism and, you know, all of the things that I don't need to describe, that tap has been switched off. And my kind of radical hope for the future is that we begin to recognise these incredible access that we have to those patterns, those cycles, and start to turn them back on again and give the next generation the tools they need to survive into the future and become better ancestors as a result. I think you've hit on something we struck us during the making of the programme, that this is an intergenerational story. Mm. Of course, the older people telling us about the past, but those older people also taking responsibility for the earth we leave to our descendants and meeting them yeah. in hopefully a, a programme like this. Colin? Yeah, so um, we've talked about um, storytelling, about the arts, um, about individual action, about small-scale business um, and politics. And the thing that knits them all together uh, in a large society is the, is the media. We, we've got to get better at telling these stories daily. And that has a real effect then in terms of public opinion because people are being better informed. I will tell one joke Katrina Devereux said earlier on, I'm going to blame you for this, but the most audacious thing we did in this programme was put uh, RT still in existence in 2050. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I wasn't given a choice about that one. <laughs> So I think I'm going to leave it there, except for one more question, maybe Cormac. What is the message you want people to take away the day after? That sounds like another disaster movie, but <laughs> what for you, as the person who's taken this from the beginning to the end, that tomorrow tonight leaves for the future? Uh, hopefully some, audience, some of the audience will come at it anew and just maybe figure out, well, what, what can I do? And it, it might start with conversations. It might start with conversations in the petrol station about what they saw last night, it might conversations in the crash conversations in the workplace. But hopefully we just amplify those conversations and it, and it can be a bottom-up movement rather than something that we're, we're waiting for the government to cop to solve. Cormac, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of, uh, for my privilege of being part of this production. But I hope you walk away from here feeling that you have that great sense of the anxiety of the future, but the agency, uh, we can do something about it. So thank you for being here tonight and I hope you be the agents of change. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast recording of a special event held at the Project Art Centre, supported by Science Foundation Ireland. This is Mark Little. Thanks for listening.